Welcome to the new sound of online radio. Welcome to the sound of Universal Broadcasting Network. She's passionate about telling stories of amazing women who are rocking the world and empowering women to live, love, and thrive. Here's your host, Katherine Gray. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to Live, Love, Thrive Women's Empowerment Hour, brought to you by 360 Karma. We hope you visited the website and also our Facebook. And of course, joined our conversation on Instagram and Twitter at My360Karma. Well, you know, every week we feature incredible women. Today we have on recovery advocate Susan Bowling. Please give a warm welcome to Susan. Hi, Susan. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Good. Thank you. How are you? Good. I'm so glad to have you. Uh, I know a while back uh, you'd taken my podcast workshop, and I, I look forward to at some point uh, seeing your show. I, I know it's coming. I know it's, it's in the coming. works. It's a lot of work. <laughs> it is yeah. a lot of work. Uh, it is a lot of work. I, uh, my hat's off to you. <laughs> oh, thank you, thank you. It, it takes a village. I've got a great team around me. We've got Kurt back there on the board, and. Uh, Shannon, who helps us with our uh, marketing and Ash and so forth. So, you know, I, I always say, you know, let people do what's their gift. You know, I'm not really like that prolific at running a board or social media, but, you know, I do love doing the show. And uh, it, it's wonderful to, you know, that everybody that uh, does what they love. Right. Don't you right. agree? And I know you're yeah. doing what you love. It's absolutely true. Yeah. And we're going to talk about true. your path to being a recovery advocate and what okay. that exactly means, because okay. some people might not even know what a recovery advocate is. Okay. But it's a really cool niche. And you had an interesting journey. Um so we're going to talk about how you got there, but um, just like up front, I want people to know that, you know, there are people of all socioeconomic uh, statuses that have problems with addiction, whether it's alcohol or drugs, and could easily end up uh, in court uh, being filed with DUI or whatever. Right. And you are an advocate for them. And there are people that might have a son, a daughter, a, a wife, uh, you know, a sister uh, that needs somebody to advocate for them. Right. And because of your background and your journey, you decided to help those people. So we're going to talk about that. But first, I want to talk about how you got there. So you were born in Miami? I was, I was yeah. born in Florida, born in Tampa, yeah. but raised in Miami. And yeah. raised in Miami, yeah. yeah. I spent many years there myself, yeah. yeah. Great time. I there. know. I wish we'd caught, crossed paths <laughs> then, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and you were sharing with me that you left there when you were a teenager, was yeah, it? Or I, how, I think I was 19 17? turning 20, 19. actually. Okay. I've done a couple of years of college there and then came here. Yeah. yeah. And the reason you left there and came to the West Coast was... You know, I was a gay woman mm -hmm. in a time that was, uh, it was not as safe to be a gay woman mm -hmm. as it is today. Right. Those I remember were... you said it was around the time of Anita Bryant oh, yeah. in Miami. Absolutely. In my hometown. Oh, my. Yeah. I couldn't imagine being in yeah. Miami while Anita Bryant was throwing right. the gays under the bus. Exactly. For you millennials, look it up. Yeah, look it up. <laughs> it was a very hard time. It was a hard time. A really yeah. hard time. And so your parents uh, would not have taken well to that. 
No, I mean, eventually, yes. Yeah. And very supportive. And, you know, yeah. the whole world began to change. Yeah. Um, and certainly my family on a personal level. But initially, yeah. you know, not, it, it, there was resistance. There was, yeah. of course, they would want me not to have a life that would be difficult. So they right. tried to kind of engineer that. Or that they way. thought would be difficult. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and so this was in the 90s? Um, this is the 80s. 80s. Yeah, like and 1980. So we have to remember that in the 80s, uh, there weren't even any gay people on television, like no. in roles on television, openly gay people. No. Like millennials, can you imagine that? Yeah. No TV show, no Will and Grace, no, no Ellen DeGeneres. There was no shows with gay people. It was as right. though we didn't exist. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and so I think it was in the late 80s, 90s, that we began, in the, mainly in the 90s, to see gay characters. True. And um, it's, it's, you know, something that we don't take for granted. No, I, I yeah. you know. I, I, we can't have lived as many years as we have and not seen like the evolution of this. It went mm -hmm. from, you know, uh, constant oppression to, you know, to the extent of Anita Bryant to, um, and all that she was about to the Briggs Amendment. Remember that, gay people shouldn't be employed in schools and in places like that. To the yeah. HIV crisis, right? Where we right. lost a generation of our friends. Yes, that was yeah. tough. That was right. tough. Very so, did you, um, when you moved to California, did you feel a freedom to be yourself? Was it better here? Yeah, yeah. yeah it was a, it was a more established community. Yeah, and so it was both. Was it West Hollywood or? Where? Yeah, yeah, I moved into West Hollywood. Yeah. And West Hollywood, still one of the gayest cities right. in the country. <laughs> Back yeah. then, it wasn't even a city. Yeah. 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 And so um, I just wanted to find my community so that I could mm -hmm. be comfortable to find my identity within right. that. You know? Right. Yeah. So you, you had shared with me that you came here to go to film school. Yeah, initially. And, and told your parents on that premise. <laughs> um, and oddly enough, you never got there, but you did end up in the industry. Yeah. yeah. I wanted to wait a year so that I could have residency and the tuition would be lower. And in that year, I just started working a lot. And then yeah. I was working so much that I really... Kind and you started to, working at the Academy, right? Yeah. My yeah. first job was the Academy of Motion Pictures. And yeah. I worked that's in a pretty cool department. first job. Yeah, it was a great you gig. You were meant to be here. It, it yeah. was a great gig. And I went yeah. on through different levels of, you know, different types of work within the industry. And you worked for some pretty major studios as yeah. a story editor. Yes. Um, let's tell people what a story editor does. Because you did this for like 10 years and were, you know, I, I know you really enjoyed it. And you yeah. worked for big companies like TriStar and... Yeah, I worked Others. for producers that had deals at these yeah. at these studios, Warner Brothers and TriStar. Um, a story editor is somebody who goes out and finds interesting properties that could be developed into mm -hmm. a good movie. Mm -hmm. Like a case. book, a screenplay. Right, yeah. a play, um, a story. These days, yeah. you know, we're getting them out of TV articles yeah. and, you know, or uh, newspaper articles. Yeah. And I'm things, telling you, as this polit political situation unfolds, I'm seeing a really unbelievable movie yeah. coming. <laughs> yeah. 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 We don't know if it's comedy or tragedy. Yet. I know. I think a little of both. Thank <laughs> yeah. God for uh, Stephen Colbert and Murphy Brandt and yeah. Candace Bergen uh, right. uh, putting a little humor into it all. Yeah. Um, but uh, so uh, when you say you'd go out and get screenplays and or books or whatever for movie deals, how does one do that? I'm just so curious. Like, you know, you read a lot. Yeah, you read books before they're published. You oh. know the. Um, Did you, you constantly have people saying, "Oh, I have a book," and that, or yeah. you, you know, you just kind of start looking at in 
um, journals that are publishing good writers and new mm -hmm. writers, and you go to plays and you do things like oh. that. It was, you know, in that way, of course, it was a great. Yeah. It was a great gig. Yeah, it was my, by far of that working in that industry, my favorite edge of it. Yeah, you know? yeah, so, that sounds fascinating. Yeah, it was yeah. good. Um, so then, what took you out of that? I know you made a move to uh, Santa Barbara, mm -hmm. and and you ended up having a child. I did. Yeah. Yeah, my daughter was the first child conceived of artificial insemination from two gay parents. Oh, my gosh. Um, wow. Yeah. So you made history. I, I made some history. Yeah. Um, and my daughter's Blaze. She's, she'll be 32 this month in wow. a couple of weeks. Um, and she's amazing. She'd have to be amazing. She's yeah. a, a piece of groundbreaking history. <laughs> well, yeah. And she, um, so I really wanted to uh, raise her in a place that, was nurturing and quiet and private at that time. And mm -hmm. so we started in Santa Barbara for a number of years. I was in a relationship with um, someone who wanted to be up there as well. And then um, in 1996, I moved back to Los Angeles and started you know, more of a focus in, well, first in my own addiction. Right, right. <laughs> and, and so then, did that happen in Santa Barbara or in LA that you actually had your own addiction issues? It started in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah. Was it because of your breakup or? No, you know, there was a number of things. I think, um, I, I don't know that there was one single cause. Like, mm -hmm. um, I'm the child of an alcoholic, but mm -hmm. my father was recovered for the last 20 years of his life. Mm -hmm. And my but entire But I think if you have the gene, it runs in the family. You no? know, they say that. Yeah, but do you believe that? They may eventually find and isolate this gene. Mm -hmm. um, and perhaps there's that, you know, biological uh, setup. But I think what it is, is that when children grow up in, and I'm not speaking just to myself because I had a very stable household despite this, but when children grow up in a household that has addiction, mm -hmm. it's not that that looks so attractive because often you'll find kids grow up and go, yeah, no way. Yeah. I'm never going to yeah, do I've that. I've seen that. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And some of the kids in the family will be like, no way. Well, everybody will say no way. And one or two of the kids may go on and have addiction anyway. Right, right. And so we have to look at what that is. And I believe, and what I've been taught is that it's it's not that that looks so attractive to a child. It's that they're not seeing all the healthy coping mechanisms that you would see in a house that didn't have addiction. I see. So when all they see modeled for them is, you know, when we celebrate, I use. When I'm mad, I use. When right. I, you know, when I'm bored, I use. Right. Then it's the absence of the positive things. Right. Um, it's the absence of the diversity of experience. Right. So, so you think it is... It could be lifestyle, it could be genes, or it could be a combination. Yeah, it's what's modeled for people. Right, you right, know? right. And if, what, we, what we learn, what, what we, we see. see. Yeah. What we see, what we observe about how other yeah. people handle their lives. So, I mean, you really had quite a rough road that you shared. Uh, got hooked on crystal meth, which... Mm -hmm today is such a huge problem in this country, yeah. bigger than ever, I think, right? It's it's yeah. definitely having a resurgence, but today, yeah. you know, right now, I don't know if you're aware of this, and I'm not even sure our viewers are because it continues to surprise people. The number one cause of death in the United States for a person under the age of 55 is drug overdose. Wow. It's the number one cause of death. Oh, my gosh. And it's been escalating for years and years and years. Mm -hmm. And so for the last two years, we've had this enormous, yeah. you know, like um, the last several years, an enormous uh, loss. But that it's the number one cause of death in the United States. Wow. 
wow, is extraordinary. Yeah, that is. You know, we think gun deaths. We think, you know, we think cancer. We think, yeah. you know, for a while, I, I do a lot of educational presentations in colleges and, and um, with mental health professionals. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've been doing these presentations for years. And each year it'd be like, well, it's the number one cause of accidental death. Well, it's, you know, more than gun accidents. Certainly almost we're, we're more than automobile accidents now. And now it just is, it's period. It's just number one. Yeah. It keeps escalating. Wow. That is yeah. really frightening. Yeah. Uh, even more the reason that we need more people doing what you're doing, which is not just advocating after somebody has mm -hmm. an addiction, but you actually help people with addictions. And let, let's talk about how you switch from being an addict into helping people. So, I mean, you yourself had been arrested, mm -hmm. homeless, mm -hmm. um, all of these things that happen to people that do get addicted, especially right. to something as strong as crystal meth. Um, and, but then you also had times where you were a f were functioning mm -hmm. addict, going to work, which a lot of people do, um, right. and functioning, but still struggling with it. Right. So you've kind of you know, experienced the whole gamut. Um, so that when somebody is talking to you that is an addict, not only do you understand where they're coming from, but you understand how they think, how they feel, uh, all of right. those things that, yeah. you know, someone who hasn't been an addict could never relate to. So yeah. it's a wonderful gift that you've been down that road, recovered, and that you're giving back. Um, and that's why I'm so happy to have you on today because addiction, like you said, um, is just so prevalent. Right. And I know that we're going to have listeners who either have an issue or mm -hmm. know someone that has an issue, a loved one or a friend. Right. And I'm hoping that they'll walk away with some resources and information that will be helpful. Right. Um, so that's so my goal I. today. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, first of all, let's say um, someone's husband um, gets a DUI or mm -hmm. their kid um, is arrested for stealing because they're trying to get money for drugs okay. or whatever. You, uh, people usually find you, recovery, uh, what is it, recoveryadvocate.com. Recovery or just my name, susanbowling.com. Susanbowling.com. Mm -hmm. And um, normally that's how people reach you is like a family member will reach out right. or a, a referral from a friend. Right. And you will actually go into court and advocate for them. And what you've explained to me that means is that, let's say, uh, if, if they didn't have an advocate, they might be put in jail. But you're kind of like a private probation officer, right? <laughs> yeah. Yes. And yes. So to speak. So yeah. to speak. That, that would be one way to look at a, a portion of the job. Yeah. So I do different types of work. But yes. when we're speaking about advocacy for court-referred people, yes. um, somebody's arrested. If it's a first-time DUI, it, that's very black and white. You know, mm -hmm. they'll hire an attorney or they'll work with a public defender. And it's already determined with a DUI what the, you know, what the penalties are going to be. Consequences, you know, yeah. The consequences. Um, I get hired on cases that are a little more tricky often mm -hmm. because they'll Maybe it's be... the third DUI, something <laughs> like that. Yeah. It could be that or it could be, you know, a lot of crimes that are really addiction-driven don't look that way on paper. Right. You know, very few people are going to be caught with drugs. They're mostly caught doing the things to get the drugs. Right. And so on paper, it will look like a robbery or a burglary or, or those kinds of crimes. Mm -hmm. So 
part of my work will be in looking at how serious that, you know, an attorney will bring me on. I get a lot of referrals from criminal defense attorneys. So they'll bring me in on a case that looks like this person is facing a lot of time. Mm -hmm. And they have, and I'll go in and I'll do an interview and find out what are the full spectrum of need here. So um, the judge is going to want, the DA is going to want a very long treatment episode. Mm -hmm. Well, right there we've got a problem because funding treatment is very difficult. Right. If everybody in the United States who wanted to go into treatment today right. decided today's the day, we don't have near enough beds. Right. And we don't have the ability. We don't have the infrastructure built. Right. Despite it being the number one cause of death. Right, because the federal government doesn't put it as a priority, yeah. right? Yeah. It, it's, it's been years of neglect. Right. In, you know, it's been years of neglect. So... What I'll try to do is I'll look at a person's funding. Do they have private health care insurance? Well, that'll buy a little bit of time in treatment. Mm -hmm. But, like, private health care insurance is only going to pay for a short detox and then straight into outpatient. Mm -hmm. Well, if you're looking at a serious crime, the DA and the judge are going to want something like, you know, I've had judges ask for, like, three years of treatment. If you can get, you know, I would have put him in prison for three years. I went three. Well, that's not really possible. Right. It just doesn't exist. Right. But what I can do is try to build a treatment plan by exhausting the person's benefits, whether they're private or publicly funded. Mm -hmm. You know, Medi-Cal in California now covers residential treatment. We're in our second year of this. Mm -hmm. That's brand new. Wow. And, We're and, the only and, state in the country that that. Oh, my gosh. Was, why don't they do that in these Midwest states that have such an issue? It was, it's part of the yeah. Affordable Care Act. It was right. something Obama implemented. And we're right. kind of a test case, which right. the idea was California would roll this out. Right. All the counties would jump on board and, and the funding would change. And then the rest of the nation would take on. But And, and so all these Midwest com uh, con uh, uh, states um, <laughs> that um, are red and don't want the Obama or Affordable Care Act don't even realize probably, like our conversation mm -hmm. is covering, that uh, this could have been implemented in their states right. to help cover this addiction it, crisis that they're having. It still can. Yeah. And, you know, Medi-Cal, which is what we call Medica Medicaid, in other states it's called but, Medicaid. This is for old, is this for older? No, no that's okay. Medicaid. Oh, right, right, right. So this brings it to people that don't have health insurance. Mm -hmm. um, they don't earn enough money to be able to afford a policy or, or whatever it is. And they're eligible for Medi-Cal. And we can put somebody into treatment for up to five months in a year. Mm -hmm. um, so that's so you'll go to the judge and you'll say, we can get them a, a well, year. I, let me build this. I may okay. pop them out of that system and move them into another program. Mm -hmm. I'll bring in mental health services. Mm -hmm. And where and they'll I be accountable to you. Exactly. This is where, you know, when we say private probation, that right. was just a, one one of the attorneys I work with described that. And I was like, oh, yeah, that You know does what? Work, I you know? think that's a good analogy. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. basically, I'm yeah. going to monitor that person in treatment. And if they leave early, mm -hmm. I immediately inform the court. And right. so the court feels that they're going to know within, you know, 72 hours max, right. that's if it happens on a weekend, wow. that this person actually walked out of treatment. So let me ask you out. this. How often do they drop out and you have to call the court? Is it is it more that they they stick with you and it works out or is it um, more that they drop out and you have to call it, the court? You know, I have a diversity of clientele. Yeah. It can go either way. So mm -hmm. it, it, I, I have to say, and it's it, it's just the luck of the draw. That most of the people that I put in treatment, I'm on them. Mm -hmm. And I take a lot of time to explain to them what the consequences are. And one of the first things I say to somebody as we're driving, usually from jail to the treatment center, is you're going to have 
times where you're going to be impatient and impulsive and more acting out of your addiction than any place else. And you may walk out of here or you may break enough rules that you're going to be asked to leave. The only thing that could be worse than that is if you don't call me. Mm-hmm. If you call me, I can get you into another program in the time frame that I have to inform the court. I'm going to tell the judge that you had to leave this program and why. But it's much better to say, but he, she immediately recognized the problems and we and requested immediate help and this person is in this such and such program. Right. So you get to control what that notification looks like right. if you stay calm. Right. So. You are just, uh, the work you do is amazing. There needs to be more of you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I know there's some, but yeah. there needs to be more. Um, I know you do other work than the advocacy, so let's talk a little bit about that. And and what do you call that? I know... um, Harm reduction. Harm reduction. What does that mean? I'm a harm reduction coach, and I've started doing this work in the last few years. So you have to understand, from working with people in incarceration and, uh, you know, trying trying to give people alternatives to incarceration, I'm seeing people who are paying a usually a very big price, you know. For example, yeah. in the United States, there's more people incarcerated for marijuana-related laws than all all uh, violent crimes combined. Are you kidding? Yeah, drug... So most more people, people are in jail for, like, marijuana than they are lot, for... There are more arrests robbery, for marijuana. Murder, oh, absolutely. Whatever. And then just outside of marijuana, if we no just go idea. to all other drugs. Yeah, it's So huge. now that we're legalizing it, will that... Make a big impact on our prison population? California has legalized it. Yeah. And other states have followed, both medicinally and otherwise. But the federal government still puts um, marijuana up on Schedule 1, which is the highest penalty. So it's alongside LSD and heroin. Why is that? And why haven't they changed it? Again, it's years of neglect. It's years of just say no being the response to the drug problem. When you just say no, you lose an opportunity to really give people valuable information they need, people are going to use anyway. Right. So harm reduction is a principle of taking something that is dangerous Mm -hmm. and trying to bring some safety underneath it. Right. So I've started working with people outside of the court system in another, you know, aspect of my work um, where people may be drinking or using or smoking, especially with the legalization of marijuana, it's Mm -hmm. become, you know, much more prominent and people of all ages are doing it more than they would otherwise. And they could still be arrested for it? Um, no. Well, it really depends. It depends. If they're like, if you, they're flying somewhere, you certainly don't want to fly into another state with it. But in California, you're able to grow up if you're 21 and over. You're able to grow up to six plants. You're able to have up to an ounce on you at any given time of flower. Mm-hmm. Right? But you um, can't fly to another state and then maybe not be and then maybe be arrested and you could and slap on a federal exactly. charge. And it's a federal crime. It's yeah. why at our dispensaries, the people yeah. it's always a cash transaction. They can't have a bank because the bank is federally regulated on school campuses i do a lot of work with college students they can't smoke on campus even if they're over 21 because those are federally funded programs oh how interesting so i didn't even know it's this that. disparity yeah. right but and, to and my work yeah i'm looking to work with people where they haven't torched their lives they're not committing crimes it hasn't spun out of control i really want to work with people earlier people who are beginning to experience some loss or chaos in their lives because they're like waking up and smoking first thing in the morning and and i got a good um preview to this work basically by working with so many college kids like if i turned to every college kid i worked with and i was like really you smoke or you use oh yeah well no you got to stop that let me put you in treatment 
I would have maybe a half a session with people and that would be it. These are people that are young generally and they don't see their life as right. something that they're going to quit entirely. But they do need to create a conversation around, okay, wait a minute, addiction builds through compulsion. Right. So we need to like build some muscle around not using as much. Right. And I'll, I'll usually ask somebody, what are the most important times you're drinking or using? And they'll name it through the day, and I'll okay. try to keep those intact if I can. And I try to disrupt the process and say, okay, I'm going to ask you not to smoke first thing in the morning, but instead to get up, eat, do these things. What are some things that you're ignoring that you kind of that are kind of worrying you that you need to address? Let's put a couple of those goals in. Bam, now I want you to smoke and know that you've gotten some things done already today. Right. And move on. Right. And it, it's the same work. I'm just coming in through a different door. Yeah. And I'm getting in earlier and being able to say to people, okay, what's your eating like? What's your sleeping like? Let's regulate your sleep. Right. Let's get you up, getting up more or less at the same. I want people to naturally have as much energy every day as the day before and the day right. following. So they know what they're yeah I, I do know friends that have said that that smoke all the time that they don't have the energy they're right. lethargic and yeah. yeah so recoveryadvocate.com is where they can find you or yes. susanbowling.com b-o-w-l-i-n g g just like the yep. game just like the game um and uh if somebody is out there they have an addiction or they have a friend or a family member with an addiction mm-hmm. um they should reach out to you and get some information get yeah. some guidance that's what you're here for that's your gift you're giving back to the world to make the world a better place and you know I love what you're doing we need more of you (laughs) yeah thank you so thank you so much for tuning in today thank you Susan for being on be sure to visit her website susanbowling.com or recoveryadvocate.com we hope that you are making it a great day and uh, that you tune in next week on Wednesday we'll have another amazing guest thanks a lot make it a great day hugs and happiness bye-bye